Hello and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jessie. And I'm Kelly. And this week we are discussing The Burning God by R.F. Kuang. This is the third book and final book in the Poppy War series. I assume it's the final book. I didn't see anything else coming up for the series. Um, Rin is working to take down a bunch of people and change the way Nakata is run. Is she the best person to do that? She doesn't think so. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we're going to start with some content warnings for this episode and for the book. Um, This book is for adults. It is not a YA book. Um, Probably don't want to give this to a pretty young teen because it's a lot. Um, so content warnings for war, violence, murder, starvation, drug use, cannibalism, and suicide. And some mention, mention of rape and sexual assault. Yes. So if you don't want to listen or hear about those things right now, then skip on over to the next episode where we'll be discussing Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Initial Reactions. Okay, this book was a lot. (laughs) Um, It's funny because I was a little iffy about the first book, but then really liked the second book. Um, But I don't think I was super into this one. There was a lot of traveling, which I hate, and military strategy, which I also wasn't super into. There were a lot of things I think this book did really well, especially when it comes to talking about some of the really tough topics. But I think you might need to be in a certain frame of mind to go into reading this. And I don't think this was the right time for me to be reading this. That's a very fair take. I expected R.F. Kuang to break my heart with the end of the series, and she certainly did. Did not disappoint on that end. Lots of feels, lots of violence and twists and turns, and I really liked following Rin to her, like the conclusion of her story. But I feel you that like it was kind of a hard time for me to read it. I can imagine like another a different reading experience where all of these books are out and you start the beginning. Cause I remember when I finished the poppy war and I couldn't wait to start the dragon Republic, but of course we had to wait, but I could imagine reading the series all the way through and that being like a very satisfying and like whirlwind experience. Um, I'm glad that we finished the series, but I will, I'm not, not sad to, to move on from Rin's story. No, I think I'm also like really in the mood for like fluff right now. And so yes, (laughs) this is like the exact opposite of that. So I just was like, maybe in a different mindset like this would have been a better reading experience for me so I don't know why did we pick this book I wanted to linger here for a second because correct me if I'm wrong but I think this series is the most decidedly not YA of anything we've read for the podcast yes I think this and um it's not called the fifth season what's that book called by N.K. Jemison? oh the broken earth trilogy the fifth season yeah Oh, it is the fifth season? Yeah, you got it right. Oh, okay. I thought that was the name of a movie. Um, so, like, I would say that those two are, like, the two, like, least YA books that we've read. Yeah. And and we did this whole series. So, we read the first book, I think, because I saw R.F. Kwong at uh, Denver Comic Con and was obsessed. And she was amazing. And was like, I don't write heroes. I write villains. And I'm like, I'm into it. <laughs> and then we got a listener request for the second episode. I don't think we were super set on finishing the series out until mm-hmm. we got that request. And we were like, okay, 
And so we did that. <laughs> and then now here we are tying a bow around the whole thing. We let it never be said that we don't finish series. Or that we don't take your requests into consideration. <laughs> <laughs> so for whoever requested that second book in the series, you're welcome. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Recommend if you like. I would say a Game of Thrones, a.k.a. A so- the whole George R. R. Martin, A Song of Ice and Fire series, even though I do think that he can fuck off into the sun. I only read the first book of that series and I did not enjoy it. I DNF <laughs> the first book because I was like, I can't. It's so long. The series, the, the show was, you know, it is what it is. But there's like <laughs> lots of court machinations. It's very, there's lots of violence. It's rapey. So. Yeah. I don't know. It seemed like a similar, like a massive secondary world vibe, lots of politics going on. And I don't know. I kind of was like sad that I had to wreck a cis old white guy, but here we are. (laughs) It's okay. We might have to do it every once in a while. (laughs) And then I would say if you're looking for like the YA equivalent, maybe Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Mass, same thing, lots of court politics, pretty violent, but not too much because it's YA. I'm assuming it ends with an HEA, which we do not get here, um, but I actually haven't finished the series, so we'll do that eventually, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> that is a confession, true confessions. Kingdom of Ash has remained on the TBR. It keeps getting so shunted long. down to the bottom. <laughs> I'll get to it. Maybe over, maybe over winter break, you know, <laughs> we'll see. Maybe if our if our supporters, our listeners come through demanding a Kingdom of Ash episode, we will we will have to. We'll have no other choice. But please don't, because I don't remember anything from the previous one. (laughs) (laughs) Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. One thing I appreciated about the series is that it's basically like three three three-act structures. And then this book is like the third act of the entire series. And I appreciated how Rin comes full circle back to Takani and her southern roots and is really having to grapple with her internal, like how she internalized, you know, all of the um, like oppressive paradigms, you know, against her, like her people about her accent and her skin color and their customs and all of these things. So I, I liked how the book put Rin back in like her original where we saw her in book one. Um, but she's such a different character than she was then. Yeah, totally different. She is even struggling like with her. She doesn't really like have her accent anymore because it's something she's kind of like tried to get rid of having been at Synagogue. Oh, I'm remembering place names already. This is a good sign. Um, <laughs> so it is. It, I, it was cool to see her come back around and kind of realize like what she was doing all of this for. Essentially, the entire book is Civil War. Then again, so was book two. The Dragon Republic was also Civil War. And then book one was like War of Occupation, Interstate Warfare. So more war in this book. We have Rin and the Southern Coalition who are facing off uh, against the Dragon Republic, which is led by Najah, Yin Najah, after Rin kills his dad in an incredibly satisfying violent like display of (laughs) violence and power i was i was not sad about that scene i was like deserved it neither bye oh and and just like she kissed him and like put the fire down his throat i was like oh man this is we're seeing like rin turn the corner of like really enjoying inflicting all of this pain and having so much power 
Maybe The Punisher would have been a good, another good wreck. I'll just slip that in there. The Marvel, Netflix Marvel show, The Punisher. All right. So, all there right. You go. We also have lots of depictions of starvation in this story. Those were kind of tough to read, but we also saw how, like, Ren came to an understanding about, like, why whatever Najah's dad's name is would, like, drive in his cart past people who were starving because, like, it would cause these episodes of people, like, trying to turn over the, the cart or the, you know, wagon, whatever whatever those things are called. That sound, those um, sound like both <laughs> great terms to me. Okay, I was like, what are they called? Trying to get food. We see depictions of like cannibalism because as like a last resort for people who don't have access to food. And it really reminded me of um, this photograph. I went to the news museum in DC like a while ago. And one of the pictures that had won an award was um, a picture of like this starving child. And sometimes I think that we see those pictures and like real don't, think about how no one is helping them you know like the photographers taking these pictures and um not doing anything about the problem so I think we kind of see Ren kind of um dealing with that issue like how do you help when you see something that's going on without um becoming immune to it does that make sense I I see what you're saying yeah and and just like the violence that is like the spectacle of it um mm-hmm. that's what made you what made me th- what your like comment about this like photojournalist or this photographer taking mm-hmm. the child's photo and like they quote unquote win awards for it you know in the western world or in the colonial core but like the people on the colonial periphery are the people actually suffering the material consequences of that but i see what you mean by like rin's realizing that like the the scale of help that is needed is something that she can't provide it's like immeasurable and I think I don't know why it made me think of this picture I'm guessing because like there's we see lots of depictions of starving children within the story Um, but just like how do you even begin to help some you know like because I think we sometimes think of it on such an individual scale like food insecurity like so we think like oh if I could just help one person but the problem is just so big yeah does that make sense yeah so some of those depictions were hard to read and then those like little kids there was like those two girls when they were going through the mountain who who were like eating people but they had already died so I'm and you could like, tell that this was like a thing that they had done before and like a, a system yeah, that they had yeah. it's just what the tenacity of the survivor is um something to behold yeah yeah see you boulder they have like a whole <laughs> dining hall named after a yeah cannibal, so, so true <laughs> We also see lots of depictions of people deciding whether war is worth the human sacrifice. I think we see this mostly with Katai and Rin, who Rin is like, yes, worth it. And Katai is like, no, not worth it. <laughs> um, and we kind of see them battling it out, trying to decide who is right. <laughs> whether or not to use people as means or as ends in themselves. And they do not agree. <laughs> but And... Not but, and Kitai capitulates at almost every turn, mm-hmm. which is, you know, uh, a dynamic that they have. We also see a shit ton of war strategy, just like too much war strategy. <laughs> we see them talking about being on the offense versus being on the defense and like why that's important. You, yeah, we get it. We see the effects of technology on war, which I actually thought was really interesting um, because Najah's 
fleet of military or whatever has the I forget what they call them, but they're like those they're basically like the dirigibles. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I think they called them a couple different things. I was like, what are these? And they have like these guns that like will fire faster, like all this stuff. So they're just kind of like learn like technology is moving forward. They're Ren's army is getting used to like these new technological advances and we see how that like plays out with people who have technology versus those mm-hmm. who do not. And with I forget what the the dude's name but one of the guys in the so- Southern Coalition who's like that guerrilla fighter and he's like teaching Ren how you win a war when you've been an occupied people and it's like these wars of attrition and like you're hitting supply chains but you're not going into like all out battle and so they're seeing like this the shortcomings of this elite Synagardian military strategy training because that's given in the context of empire it's like an outdated context that no longer applies to the material conditions in which they're fighting yeah I think it's kind of like what we see like when we see old battles of from the you know now United States people are fighting in lines they're lining up and hurting people as opposed to like I think of probably more like what we think of war now as people like hiding out and all these like little military strategies like it's not always just like people walking up to each other and you know killing each other in straight lines (laughs) with drummers let's discuss all things magic magic has a price as it usually does that's a through line in our podcast. We see that Rin calling the Phoenix hurts Katai because she has to use him as this like conduit because the seal that Sudaji put on her mind is still in full force. But she she knows that it hurts Katai and she keeps going anyway. And then Katai knows that it hurts him and he keeps letting her. I like how we saw close up this. It's like a parasitic almost existence for the two of them, right? Yeah, for sure. We didn't see too, too much magic is mainly Rin and her fire because we don't get more shamans until later. The very end, which I enjoyed this part where Rin is like recreating the psych. She argues that it's like worth it to train some more shamans who are eventually going to go mad and be have to get put in a mountain or killed. What do you think about that? She's like a real by any means necessary person, which I understand. But she, I think she does a good job like in the story and like as a leader explaining to them the consequences of doing this. Like they don't go into it without any knowledge of what's going to happen to them or what the consequences will be. And we do see people. She lets people leave if they don't want to do it yeah. when she's choosing people. Now, she does choose them by making them like rip off a fingernail, which I was kind of like, yeesh, that's like no thank you (laughs) you would have left (laughs) i'm not doing that (laughs) but yeah i like those scenes where she's like training them how to use use the gods and learn about the gods and actually see them i thought it was cool that we saw different gods too like the the venom Mm -hmm. goddess and like the tortoise that like makes the big earthquakes or whatever I liked seeing the different gods. I remember enjoying that when we were with the psych earlier on in the Poppy War because you had lots of different people Mm -hmm. who were connected to different gods. And so you got to see a bit more of like the wide range of magic. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that we got to see that there was like at least one god who wasn't all about fucking destroying everything. Because that one girl can heal people, not from, you know, deadly attacks, but she can help them like if it's, you know, 
something that could have been fixed with time anyways. So that was kind of cool. I forgot about her. Thanks for bringing her up. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much like murder and death and like violence in this book. It was just nice to see like one person who's like, I can heal people. (laughs) Exactly. It's just a change of pace. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. I don't know. There were just so many villains throughout this book. Like, although things seem to keep coming back to Najat, in the end, I think maybe Ren saw herself as a villain. And she is kind of a villain, which was fun to read about. But I was also like, bro, why? (laughs) I'm so used to an HEA. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, this isn't supposed to happen. (laughs) I agree with you that there's, there's just like villains everywhere villains galore and maybe that's a good thing because like in real life nobody is perfect nobody is perfectly good like I know we like hype up these figures in our minds about how like good they are and all the things that they do but they're probably they're like somebody's villain they are the beginning of somebody's villain backstory Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. sure (laughs) exactly nobody's perfect and I would say Rin is definitely 100% a villain 100% yeah yeah but i feel bad about it for some reason (laughs) because you got her whole backstory and you liked it kind of yeah yeah when you feel a connection to a character like i don't mind a villain i think i'm more used to like a morally gray character and i would not say no i i feel like she turned the line when she like turned a an entire volcano like she turned an entire island nation into a volcano that exploded like she genocided yeah yeah hard yeah yeah, and I just can't stand by that. It's hard. It, nope, nope. That's hard. That's hard to excuse. We don't excuse it. Yeah, yeah. Don't excuse it. I would also say that, like, some people who came off worse, perhaps, in this villain hierarchy, are the colonizers and those who abet them. Whether that's the Federation of Mugen, we saw, you know, the toll that was taken at Golanese, especially, and then or Nikara, like the Republic or the empire back in the day and Vizra's dragon Republic, like neither of those were particularly benevolent. And then also Hesperia, which is like their occidental Western occupier colonizer nation. Yeah. Not good. Is that where the three people are from? Like the three, whatever they're called, the trio. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, like uh Jung and the other two people. They're from Nikara. They are the trifecta trifecta that that's it yeah i would put them as also villains i just just wanted to add that in here they're also villains they did some terrible shit like if it wasn't for them it might not be as bad as it is i guess it was bad when they were kids so like you know but they like rin they created themselves right and then we're seeing the cyclical nature of this like you accumulate Mm -hmm. power in order to overthrow your colonial oppressors and then thus become the colonizer and oppressor okay and i think we see this sometimes in the real world when people like make this attempt to move towards socialism which i'm like yes do it but then people get the power and they're like i'm not giving it up (laughs) exactly and then it doesn't work you know so like we need good people to try and do those things so that it can work but people are obsessed with having power and the whole like idea of the people who are from nikara who aided the colonizers like the exterior colonizing forces and those are the people who from their own country people got the worst punishments and rin was like yeah, yeah let there be blood basically 
Yeah. I mean, I get it. You do you, Ren. <laughs> Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability, and other stuff. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. Hi, lady. She's making a cameo in the background of Jesse's screen. I was like, I don't know where she is. I can't see my screen. <laughs> okay, so Rin is learning to live with her disability. In the last book, she loses her arm. Now, I don't remember how that happened or why. Her hand. Oh, is it just her hand? I thought it was like from like elbow I down. I thought it was just like wrist down, but not like there's much. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, either way, we see her trying to fix it with the um, new shaman she creates or helps to become a shaman to see if they can fix that. They cannot. And so we do see a lot of Rim coming to terms with her disability and learning to live with her disability, um, learning to fight differently, hold a sword, all those things. Because I think it was her right hand and she's right-handed. So she's like just learning how to live her life in a different, a different body. And there's a lot of ups and downs with that. We also see the reputation of women after sex versus men. This happens with Rin. It's like talking to that guy whose name I don't remember. He was the guy who was teaching her about strategy, war stuff. Yes, that guy. He's from like a different province maybe. He is murdered in the end by like a bunch of people because he like sold her out. But she, she's like contemplating whether or not to have sex with him. And she's like, no, this will be bad for like my reputation kind of. And she's like not really sure about it anyways. <laughs> Lainey is also not sure. I don't know if people can hear Lainey. She did not read this book, but I appreciated that in the book because like Ren is like this powerful leader and she's still having to worry about her reputation like as a woman, you know, which is tough and it seems like tough for her. Yeah, even if she's basically the Phoenix God incarnate, she still has to worry about patriarchy. Yeah, patriarchy is always bringing us down. Burn it down. <laughs> you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the, tri the trifecta reunites and then dies we learned about how very fucked up we only see the dragon emperor for like i don't know 20 minutes or something i listened to the audio maybe book, so i don't know how long it was but same um but we see he was like really fucked up he's the one who sold the spearly children for experimentation to the federation of mugen and then like that's part of the reveal of like where rin's parentage comes from same with alton mm -hmm. and then also it was just I thought that Kwong did a really good job of showing like how immediate the trauma response can be because Jung and Sudaji, right when Riga wakes up, like they seem to go back into their patterning of like fight, flight, or fawn. And it seems like both of them are like fawn, freeze, fawn, yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, so, and I thought like Rin watching that happen and it seems like she, a lot of pieces are clicking into place for her when she's watching this. And then it also seems like the trifecta is a parallel to the Rin, Kitai and Neja Trinity that is kind of set up at the end as this like national, like this potential future, like, I don't know, iconic, legendary trio. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that Rin likes to think that she's like Sudaji instead of like, Riga, but I'm, I'm I think she's yeah. Riga and she doesn't realize it. <laughs> Sorry, Rin. <laughs> Sorry. I'm gonna enter in like one more thing into the entered into the into the chat. <laughs> into <laughs> evidence. <laughs> okay, so we have like Rin, Katai, and Naja, and like Rin is like dark skinned. She's from the south. She's from wherever. I don't remember all the places. 
spirally. She's a spirally. I think sometimes I forget that like Rin is dark skinned until she like starts talking about it, which I think, you know, it's good to have these like dark skinned Asian characters because we don't see them a lot in in movies and books and TV shows. But then I was just like so frustrated at the end that I'm like, of course she dies. Of course she's the bad guy. Like why is it always like dark skinned people who are the bad guys who die, who have like suffering and pain and abuse and like all those things. So that was just like something that I was thinking about like last night before like I was going to sleep and I was like damn I'm like so disappointed like I'm real disappointed that that was the ending for Rin like I know it had to happen for the story but at the same time I'm like why did like this whole main character your only dark-skinned person really in the story who's like a main person and you're like they gotta die and she's like this tragic like (laughs) martyr character because she's the last the quote like the last of her kind or whatever you know her entire Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. have been genocided which also means there's no more spiritualities, which means they've gotten rid of like the dark skinned people. Right. But I, I, and I feel like some of the people in the South were dark skinned, but they don't have a, like they have some eth- race, I don't know, phenotypic differences from the people on spear. I think it was maybe mm-hmm. the red eyes or something, but like, yeah, I think so. But yeah, it doesn't seem like this hierarchy of skin color is going anywhere as far as like how the story leaves off. So that was just like really annoying to me. And I just wanted to mention and rant about it real quick. And one does not simply. <laughs> finally it's time for shipwrecked a segment about asexuality sexuality sex romance and relationships and sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own i mean i really thought things might turn around for rin and Nijah. did you really think that though just a little bit just like a tiny you hoped i hoped but like it was just never gonna happen i don't know why i even got my hopes up (laughs) she really wants to get out of here yeah kwong definitely set this up as like a star-crossed lovers like the one that got away sort of situation and i think it works really well for these two characters um especially because like they i don't know rin is just kind of too far gone i think to come back from that and i don't actually even know if it's something she really wants because like i feel like she just has like more on her plate that seems more important to her than trying to figure out this relationship with Naja or whatever right or anyone, than like really. taking a lover she's got other things to worry about yeah <laughs> a lot of other things to worry about I liked the depiction is like platonic love almost between Rin and Katai and part of me like wanted to ship them but at the same time I'm like they have such like a beautiful intimate bond that at the same time is kind of fucked up, right? Because of this power differential, you know, and Rin keeps taking and Katai keeps giving. But I don't know. It's just like so tragic and the way that it turned out. And then, of course, because Rin dies and Katai dies because they're connected. Ugh. I know. They're like Romeo and Juliet, but friends. <laughs> yeah, I did like their relationship. I do feel like it w- there was like obviously a power imbalance. And I do, f- it did seem like katai didn't really feel like he could do much about it and at one point he does like i guess he gets a say over how much power she can use and he does do that but for the most part he kind of just lets her do whatever and i kind of felt bad for him you know like i don't like would they be as close if he wasn't her anchor you know what i mean Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I'm just going to say that you just need a big old mountain to trap your baddies in. 
this device was used a few different times and it just kind of made me chuckle. Just stick up, put a yeah. mountain on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just need a mountain. It'll fix just all your like, problems. Cut a hole in the mountain <laughs> and stick the person in there and it'll be fine. There's a quote. I do not have a page number because I listened to the audiobook, but it says the point of revenge wasn't to heal. The point was the exhilaration, however temporary, drowned out the hurt. And I don't know. I just really liked this quote. It feels like a very prescient take on what revenge actually is because it does serve like a, a purpose yeah. affectively, you know, like it's cathartic yeah. in some way, but it's not like it's the quote unquote right thing to do. Well, then you don't really feel better. Like it doesn't help you move on, but it does also feel real good. <laughs> I appreciate how Kwong like dug into the psyche of this because revenge, this whole like vengeance arc is very common in our media especially with like superheroes and shit like that right and so like actually mm -hmm. but i feel like kwang is the one who like they've actually like delved into the depths of what it means to inflict this kind of harm and like you're not the same person on the other side of it for sure at the end of the book um ren kills herself to kind of take herself off the, the board as far as like the war and all that stuff and trying to help Naja make things right um, to like add to his story. And I just don't really know how to feel about that. I didn't really like it. And yeah, I still don't know how to feel about this. I was writing these notes last night and I was just like, how do I feel about this? I do not know. Mm. Yeah. There's no happy endings, no happily ever afters. But I also don't feel like that would have been appropriate for the story or the yeah. characters, the way they were structured. Yeah, but I don't, at the same time, am I, do I, I don't know if Rin needed to necessarily. I think that it's also was maybe an easier way out than like having to be held accountable for all the shit that she did. That's so true. That's a very good point. Even to herself, like, because she's just so like, I don't know, overcome by guilt a lot of the time. Yeah. Like she just like, it peeks into the corner you know where all of her guilt and shame and baggage is hiding but then just like closes the door on it you know yeah and I think that Naja actually does really love her like even if it's just as a friend and not romantically and I don't know if he would have had it in him to do that for her I would highly recommend the short story The Nine Curves River this is about Naja and his little brother Mingja when they actually go to the grotto and meet the dragon the dragon eats the bb he like tattoos naja and gives him powers or tethers him to the arlong river or whatever and i heard this because lavar burton reads did a podcast episode for this story oh that's really cool the nine curves river came out in, in a it's an anthology about like dragons i think but it's like uh it's actually it complements what goes on in in the series so i recommend that it's cool and then lavar burton can read to you like we're on reading rainbow again um, I figured that Kill Your Darlings is an approach uh, and a, a reasonable place to put some like publishing news. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kwong's new book, Babel, is due out in fall 2022. There's um, in the show notes, I'll link to a blog post and one of her like tiny letter newsletters um, with more information about it. But it looks pretty cool. It's like a dark academia novel or whatever. And it's uh, this is a teaser from her tiny letter this is a quote. The only kind of dark academia story I want now is the sort that tears the academy and all its whiteness down to its roots. So it's it's going to be a 
an evisceration of colonialism and empire and stuff like that taking place in Oxford in the 1800s. So I'm looking forward to that one. I'll probably check that one out. It's funny because I think that's where she goes to school. (laughs) She did. She went to Oxford there. She went to Oxford for a few master's degrees and now she is at Yale for her PhD. Nice, nice. And I also highly recommend following RF Kwong on Twitter if you're a tweep. Before we end, it's time for real talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way, or did it make you interrogate a concept system or trend that you hadn't before? And as this section was blank, I took it as (laughs) (laughs) I will populate it with things. So I have two things. Um, One is, oh, lady wants back in. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm not doing it. (laughs) There's a review of the trilogy by Crystal Song in the LA Review of Books. And I highly recommend. It made me think a lot. Some of the points that made me think about were that the person brings up Rin as like a foil for Mao. And as in like this cultural figure that's like almost mystical at this point and is both like liberator and oppressor sort of thing. So, um, that made me I was like blew my mind open and I can see why that this person is making that connection they're from in the African diaspora African Asian diaspora um and they said that their mm-hmm. you know their family had been sentenced to labor and re-education and all those things under under the communist regime so I recommend reading the article for those sort for getting this take and then also there's a quote at the very end they end this um Crystal Song ends their review um, with a quote that I'm going to read. Who are we? R.F. Kwong asks. After we have fought all our lives to succeed in a system of alluring wealth and power, a system as appealing as it is repulsive, which we know is unjust and corrupt, and we still hope to be the lucky ones. When we finally realize that those in power will not save us, what do we do then? Like Ren, we are left to fend for ourselves. That quote really encapsulated to me the like disillusionment that happens to our main character throughout this uh, story. Definitely going to check out that review that sounds really interesting and the other note i have for real talk is the notion of spiralic time and this um imposition of time as like a linear thing that has progress and development and it's like we're in a graph that goes like upward is just it's a myth you know and i i think that this book really is in dialogue with the whole idea of cycles happening in history and whether or not we can learn from history to not repeat what happens and then also to the extent that that's kind of inescapable that's what i got all right should we do some card questions requisite sound effects because the production (laughs) value is excellent let's see what one piece of advice would you offer the main character you know maybe um try some like meditation or something to try and like work through your anger (laughs) issues (laughs) um do some deep breathing exercises listen to some uh, tar brock therapy yeah (laughs) you should probably talk to someone about the trauma you have experienced like through your whole life um it might help you come to terms with that and figure out better ways to go about dealing with your trauma exploding (laughs) an island of people into a volcano Mm -hmm. yeah committing genocide yeah i wouldn't do that that would be my other piece of advice. Do not commit genocide. Good advice. <laughs> you got any other advice you'd like to offer, Rin? 
Um, I would say, Rin, you're going to look for other people to give you the answers and want to control you, but that is a false refuge. There are no answers. The world is a pretty fucked up place, and everything's changing all the time. And like Jess, take Jesse's advice is also what I would say. <laughs> Damn, that was a really good card question. And it was the first one I pulled out. Impressed, impressed. Miraculous. Thanks for listening to The Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Also not YA, but was recommended by one of our lovely Patreon people melissa i believe hey, melissa. <laughs> i wrote it down <laughs> um as always we'd love to be in conversation with you magical folks let us know what you think of the episode anything we missed or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or be reaching out to us on twitter or instagram at the library coven and you all know that you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and we would super mega appreciate it if you rate and review the show because it helps algorithms and things that we have to worry about now that we're in this surveillance capital technocratic hellscape. And also you can spread the word to other rad people out there if you like talk to people sometimes, which I don't know. I'm having social anxiety problems lately, post-pandemic. It's not even post-pandemic, goddammit. It's still a pandemic. It's still a pandemic. If you want to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on coffee. Buy us a coffee, for example, or a tea. Or a book. And you can support us monthly on Patreon or by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical.